the Premier League on OTB. Flashing across and it's into the net and it is Mohamed Salah. He gets his 100th Premier League goal. The very best expert analysis on your phone and for free. Download the OTB Sports app now. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Yeah, you're welcome along. Sunday Papers, Joe Malloy with you this afternoon. Very happy to say we have journalist Kleena Foley with us and we have chief sports writer with the Irish Daily Star here in Cunningham as well. I will start with the back pages and uh, the mail first of all here with Mo Salah. I think we can uh, register that as a six-pack. I think that qualifies. Uh, treasure chest, it's a picture of Mo Salah celebrating uh, yesterday. Top off. Body shaming all of us. Uh, so Salah shines as Liverpool display full array of riches. Liverpool three, Crystal Palace nil. Jurgen Klopp writes in Stuart uh, tried to play down expectations yesterday in the wake of their brilliant performance. It's been a good week for Liverpool, I think you would have to say. Also on the back page, uh, must do better how the IRFU could instantly lift uh, the women's game. So we'll probably come to that at some stage in the discussion this afternoon. Sun Sport, this is on quite a few of the back pages. It's Oligan or Solskjaer and Rio Ferdinand, so uh, all guns blazing is the headline. Solskjaer tells Rio, I'm the boss. This in light of Rio Ferdinand's comments on BT Sport after the United defeat to Young Boys, where he was pointing to Ronaldo and uh, Bruno Fernandes to a lesser extent on the sideline. A bit like when Ronaldo was um, on the sideline for much of the Euro 2016 final uh, managing from the sideline and Ferdinand was suggesting it's um, undermining Solskjaer Solskjaer's uh, come back and said that Rio has this all wrong and it's not the case at all uh, Sunday Times uh, picture of Pep Guardiola thanks for nothing Pep uh, nil all draw yesterday Manchester City a day after rallying cry to Man City fans Guardiola serves up goal draw with Southampton is the subheading there and then interesting story from Stephen Jones on the front page of the Sunday Times a rugby plan for just 15 minutes of full contact training so it seems World Rugby is set to issue a whole series of initiatives uh, writes Stephen Jones and new laws to make the game safer uh, one of those being a limit on the number of times that teams can have contact training this is obviously something that we've seen in the NFL for I'd say the guts of a decade now at this stage and uh, Jones writes for instance this would uh, cause some major coaches to have a rethink Eddie Jones the England coach noted for running long and harsh sessions on uh, occasions so it seems at first uh, the new measures would be advisory only and then they'll see if there's an impact on injuries and uh, severity and then they may become official and mandatory uh, laws so that's on the front page of the Sunday Times again Mo Salah uh, celebrating makes the front page of the Sunday Independent Sports section going top. Salah strike helps uh, lift Reds to summit with ominous display. And then beneath that again, frustrated Solskjaer fires back at Ferdinand uh, criticism here. It's uh, Adam Lanigan. And so Solskjaer is making the point on Ronaldo and Fernandez that they were only very briefly on the touchline and it was only on the back of a terrible refereeing decision. He says um, they were aggrieved over a few bad decisions that was it he said then Cristiano sat down Bruno sat down as well we know there's only one man allowed in the technical area either me Michael Carrick Mike Phelan or Kieran McKenna so it was just a spur of the moment thing says uh, Solskjaer back page of the uh, Sunday World then it's Liverpool 3 Crystal Palace nil, uh, cop at the tops and uh, Ole that's not fair 
as in Ferdinand, that's not fair, is what Salisker is saying about Rio Ferdinand's comments on BT. And then finally, the Observer front page, they have uh, Mane, who scored his 100th uh, goal for Liverpool uh, yesterday. So there we are. They are the, the front page. is also on the front page of the Observer. I feel guilty for not putting on a show, says uh, Guardiola. Folks, you're, uh, you're very welcome. So, um, I mean, we could start in any number of places. Uh, the Michelle Smith piece, Paul Kimmage writing In Search of Michelle Smith, part two, uh, grabs the eye. Obviously, I think a lot of people interested in this uh, series. There's a part three coming. I didn't realise it was going to be a three-part or maybe it's more than three parts. I don't know. But certainly there will be a part three. This is part two pages 11 to 14 of the Sunday Independent. 25 years, Kleena, and uh, the Michelle Smith de Bruyne story uh, still fascinates, still feels unresolved, still um, pops up in Irish sport when we um, particularly come around to Olympic medals time. And, you know, some broadcasters <laughs> include Michelle Smith, others don't, although we should emphasise, and we are obviously... Uh, stressing that Michelle Smith uh, never failed a test. She was never stripped of her Olympic medals. She was ultimately banned in September 1998 for uh, accused of tampering with a urine sample and she lost her appeal in the uh, Court of Arbitration for Sport in 1999. But her Olympic medals uh, stand. But her name still prompts, I think, um, intrigue and a degree of discomfort and several other adjectives, whichever you want to throw at it. So Paul Kimmage, 25 years on, is um, exploring the whole career. Yeah, exploring is the word I'd use. I suppose I, I worked through that era. I wasn't um, involved directly in it at any stage. Um, but I know the story, if you like. And to me, I haven't seen anything new in this yet. Um, I was interested very much in um, in the section today on Sean Gordon, who was the recorder for the Irish Swimming Association at the time. And there's some really interesting stuff in that. Now, that's new to me, all right, because he outlines how when, um, I suppose, just to, to, to let people know, the genesis of today's piece is really the point at which Michelle Smith started to suddenly improve and how other people saw that. And the main, I suppose, testimony here is provided by Gary O'Toole, but also by Sean Gordon, who was um, a, a representative of the Irish Swimming Association at the time. So it goes into detail about when she suddenly seemed to improve and um, Gary O'Toole's misgivings about her sudden improvement and how he noticed in 1993 when um, they were going to uh, a World Short Course Championships, how she had physically changed. Uh, he, he just noticed that. And then it, 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 as Paul does always in great detail, the way he writes, you know, goes through her time changes, you know, the sudden changes and the big, the major improvements. Um, but I was really interested in in Sean Gordon's testimony. Um, and as I said, he, he he's a man who had, um, who had huge reputation in Irish swimming and was recorded. He, he was, if you like, he was a person who took the results and, you know, records and what was a national record and everything. And it's really interesting that Michelle Smith based herself uh, in Holland for a period. And uh, I, I'd never seen this before, that she was sending over faxes of uh, new records. But he felt that um, where they were coming from, weren't at you know, sufficient meets, if you like, to to be uh, regarded as a national record. But she she was sending them over and telling him, you know, these are my times and everything. And then oh, what really interested me, I suppose, was that when uh, subsequently after she had won her Olympic medals in '96, that uh, she was proposed to she was proposed honorary membership or lifetime membership or whatever the phrase was um, by the Leinster branch in Irish swimming and Gordon 
uh, refused to sanction that, if you like, or said he, he didn't think that it was appropriate and he resigned uh, his position. And I, I, that's a very interesting twist that I didn't know about. But it, it, as to, I suppose, when this series was flagged and it was like, um, you know, where is Michelle Smith or what happened to Michelle Smith? I suppose that's what I was thinking I'd see. And this is the second period of it. And I haven't we haven't got any 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 new information on that, I suppose. Um, so in some ways, it's left me a little bit. I'm still I'm still wanting to see more. At this uh, period, I was away. I didn't get to read part one. But this period, I suppose, Kieran, as Kleena mentions, documents that time in Smith's career where she went from, by the elite standards, very, very average in her early 20s through to, obviously, three-time gold medal winner in 96 and the rate of improvement, and as Kleena mentioned, Gary O'Toole being struck by the improvements in her. So that that is what this period ostensibly is looking at and, and covering. What jumped out to you? What anecdotes or uh, moments in the piece registered with you? The letter from Sean Gordon to the... Uh the, uh, the upcoming uh, AGM of the Leinster branch of the, of the Irish Women Association, as it was. And the reason it jumped out is because he made it clear that he didn't be- uh, he didn't really believe in Michelle Smith and what she had done. Uh, and he pointed out that many others within Irish women didn't believe in it. And he pointed out that the only congratulations achieved or received from other federations came from the People's Republic of China. And one of the things back then, um, because I think I've read more about this story than any other story in Irish sport, because it's one of it's one, arguably the most significant, and this is a media slot. It's very significant in terms of media coverage of Irish sport, and I think it was a game changer in that uh, even a lot of journalists fell out with each other over this story. You know, I remember a few years ago David Walsh wrote uh, of bumping into Liam Hayes and they, they had their first conversation in years. And they'd actually fallen out over the Michelle Smith. Like Michelle, Liam Hayes was very much pro Michelle Smith, arguing that she was clean. David Walsh went the other way. And but back then, there was often the impression that swimming, you know, uh, fingers were being pointed at Janet Evans because she it was in the U.S. Olympics. She was the home favorite, and the way it was spun here by a lot of the media was that you know she was a bitter because she she'd lost out to Michelle Smith. But, um, you know, it's clear from what Paul writes about Sean Gordon that there was a lot of people within swimming and within Irish swimming who were just as sceptical as as Janet Evans. And to be honest, I think this is building up. I know I I can see where Clean is coming from because a lot of this would be be familiar to me too, but I'm 54. I remember this well. Like, I, I don't think... What age were you in 96, Joe? 10 or 11, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So to a lot of people reading this, it's not new. So you always have to bear that in mind when, when writing these kind of pieces. But some people would think, I know this. But you have to you have to set up a story that, that people mightn't be as familiar with. And the way it's set up next week, part three, Hedge of Thorns, because there was a column Paul wrote a while ago about pulling up beside uh, with a photographer near uh, uh, Michelle Smith's house. And I think he mentioned hedges around the house or something. So I have a feeling he tries to talk to her or he does talk to her. And I think this is building up towards that. Um, I think this would be very, a very interesting book. You know, I think the... Because the, it's, it's different to what Paul has done in a while. Like Paul generally for the last few years has concentrated on columns and interviews and Q&A formats. I prefer reading like something like this. I think it's very well structured. I think there's a huge amount of thought put into 
uh, the format of it, of it uh, the people he talked to, and the way he's put the t together the, the story. And it does make me want to read more. And um, I think it, I think it's well worth reading because I think it's building up to something. And you know, I, I did a piece with Paul. Uh, around, sorry, around the 20th anniversary of, of Atlanta, around the, the 20th anniversary of her four medals, I did a piece revisiting that. And one of the people I talked to it for was Paul. And Paul said to me, I think it changed people's views forward. It was a watershed moment for Irish people, for the public. The reaction to her at the time was she was a total hero. It was our Ben, ben, Johnson, moment, ben Johnson moment. Effectively, she was saying that you know, scales fell from her eyes after that. But at the end, I finished up with that, and Paul said, what are those medals worth now? You know what? I wish her no Ill will, Ill will whatsoever. I'm happy for her to get on with her life. She wasn't the first person to cheat. She won't be the last. For me, when it was done, it was done and move on. So I'm interested that Paul has, five years later, decided to go back to it. And I'd be interested to see how this story concludes. Yeah, I found loads interesting, and I have to say, and there yeah. were lots of bits and bobs I didn't know. It's the anecdotes, it's the colour, I suppose. Again, to emphasise, uh, Michelle Smith has never tested positive for any drug. She was banned for tampering with the urine sample, and that was in 1998. This was obviously after Atlanta. It's important to stress that point. And she's kept a low profile. I mean, it was quite striking when she um, sent a statement into Liveline on the back of the Olympic win for the rowers. And so in that statement, she had said, 25 years ago this week, I became the first Irish woman to win an Olympic gold medal. By the end of that week in Atlanta, I'd become a triple Olympic champion. It was the culmination of 17 years training and dedication to my sport. Standing on the podium, watching the tricolour being raised and listening to Auron Naveen was and still is the proudest moment of my life. 25 years have passed and people still stop me to tell me where they were when I won my medals. I will always be incredibly proud of what I achieved in Atlanta and remain touched by the level of support still shown to me by the people of Ireland. Michelle Smith de Bruyne. That was to Liveline during the summer. I found that incredibly um, striking, interesting at the time, Kleena. I couldn't work out, was this a testing of the waters to see what the reaction was? Um, I mean, it's, it's a very defiant stance. And uh, Michelle Smith de Bruyne there saying that she feels the support of the people of Ireland for her achievements. Yeah, and I remember noticing it as well at the time. And, and uh, she's a, she, she works as a barrister, so she's a person who, you know, cares about legal matters and factual matters and things. And it did strike me as interesting at the time. Um, I, I get absolutely what Kieran is saying and what you're saying, I suppose, uh, because I, I worked through this area, I interviewed Michelle Smith. I would have interviewed her husband before... Um, before some of this stuff, because he was a uh, he was a world champion or a medalist at world championships. He was a thrower, a Dutch thrower. And when he came here, he lived here um, briefly. I interviewed him before he had tested positive. Um, and I remember going to an event subsequent to that, after uh, before she went to the Atlantic Olympics actually, and he blanked me, which I thought was unusual, um, because I had gone to a house and interviewed him. You know, I had a one-on-one -on, -one on with him. Um, so there, there are lots of interesting things in this for me as well. Um, and what people will find really interesting, I suppose, is how Paul details um, the improvements that she made um, over a certain period of time. And that's, I think, really probably very interesting for people who don't know about it. So I, yeah. I, I get Kieran's point is right. Like, I, I suppose I know this story quite well, uh, you know, in terms of what happened logistically. And that's what Paul takes us through. There's a, there is a very interesting point. 
Um, Sean Gordon's daughter was also a swimmer, um, uh, Shane, and and uh, in in one section of this, he he talks about how he was running out of ink because of of all of the records that she was breaking and the information that she was sending him from Holland. But he says that she sent back fax messages claiming records that were achieved at what could only be described as mini meets. Timing was recorded by handheld watches and the times were recorded only to the tenth part of a second rather than the hundredth part of a second, which is a standard practice, which it still is. I was concerned about this and decided to accept a future only electronically timed results. But within a couple of months, there was another problem. He was running out of ink. And then he talks about one of her records, which was a butterfly. She was ranked 15th in the world in 200 meter butterfly and 400 meter individual medley events. And he said he's making the point. Paul is making point that these used to be her weakest events. And uh, and this was the sort of stuff that made uh, Sean Gordon so sceptical. And he rooted out a picture from 1989 of her uh, of Michelle Smith. And the caption on it would described how uh, she had just been beaten in the women's 200 metres butterfly event at the Leinster Spring Championships. Um, and she was edged into second place by Sean by Shane Gordon, his daughter. So it, there is there is interesting insight on, on like here, and it's funny that we both actually went to the Sean Gordon section of it because that to me is, for me uh, as a reader, that's really new stuff. I hadn't seen that before. And it's really interesting to, to get his insight into it and also his right. sort of view of what everybody else or some other people in Irish swimming felt at the time. Some of the, uh, well, older stuff to you, just to give people a sense of what's in this piece. So like I said, Starts off, mentions 96, mentions the messages from the president and John Bruton, the Taoiseach. And uh, then two days later, Janet Evans obviously creates the headlines by voicing her strong scepticism. And the headlines have things like Bitter Evans brings begrudgery to a new low or USA green with envy or remarks by Evans are a disgrace. Uh, sour grape yanks attack our hero. So this was, you know, the response, obviously, from the press over here. Janet Evans had been a prodigy at 15. She'd broken world records. She had won three gold medals at Seoul. She'd won a gold at Barcelona. She was... By the time Atlanta came around, 24 years of age and in decline, whereas Michelle Smith was very much going the other way. Paul writes, of the 104 women's finalists at the Atlanta Games, Michelle Smith was one of eight aged 25 or older. Of the eight, she was the only one who had never medalled or made a final at the previous uh, games. And then uh, Gary O'Toole, as you might expect, uh, features and gives recollections of uh, various moments to Paul Kimmage. So, for instance, we're talking here maybe mid-90s, 1993 or so. And Gary O'Toole at this time was uh, juggling the George Gibney situation as well and trying to bring that situation to light. So he did a lot going on. But he was still involved in swimming. He wanted still to be a part of swimming whilst he was trying to bring the uh, Gibney situation to light. And he remembers a uh, European Championships in 1993. And it was in uh, Palma in uh, Mallorca. And Michelle Smith was there as well. Kimmage writes that uh, Michelle was on the flight. There had been another story in the papers about Eric's positive test. And uh, he, Gary O'Toole, remembers asking her about it. There was nothing accusatory in my comment and nothing defensive in her reply is how I'd best describe it, he says. She kind of brushed it off. It was all very vague. Paul Kimmage says, his memory of what happened next is clearer. We got to Palma, says Gary O'Toole, headed almost immediately to the pool to loosen out, see the facility. We got there. She took her top off and I remember thinking, wow, holy shit. 
this was not the same Michelle. She was leaner, muscular, a different shape. And her times there are fast. She goes two seconds faster than her national record, five seconds uh, in the 400 medley, five seconds faster than she'd raced all year. 200 metre backstroke, uh, she broke the national record by a second. Then she moved to Holland around 93, 94. Uh, Michelle Smith at the time talked about needing access to a 50 metre pool and in March that year, Eric, her future husband, got the offer of a house to rent near his parents. His dad wasn't well at the time, so it made perfect sense to be near a 50 metre pool and for Eric to be near uh, father. She talked about the training regime. So she said, I'm now coaching myself to a reporter at the time in Sheffield. I revel in my own training regime. I've also got to thank my fiancé. He looked at my training programme, told me this is what I was doing 16 years ago. I've adopted a training routine which would be more familiar to track and field athletes, but it suits me. I've also introduced weight training, something common to world swimmers for decades, but new to me. And it's something of a, a personal torture. So I suppose her point she's making is she wasn't training properly in advance of her times uh, improving. But O'Toole says... Uh, The whispering started in Palma uh, with the change in her physical appearance. And then he details some of the times. She goes 4.45 in Palma, 4.38 in Sheffield, 4.36 a few days later in Paris. She's dropped nine seconds in three months. She'd moved up a grade. Other teams were starting to notice. I remember the British were extremely sceptical, says um, Gary O'Toole. um, At the time... um, I remember interviewing her because there was there was scepticism here about how was she suddenly making these huge improvements because they were so substantial. And Kleena, sorry, and can I can I just ask you about that? And I definitely want to hear the follow-up point. But when you because I wasn't I don't remember obviously when you say there was scepticism. So we're talking ninety three, ninety four, ninety five when these times are jumping. How did that manifest? Were journalists well, writing just, columns yeah. and papers? Was it on? Was it discussed at national level on radio on television? No, not really. In fact, uh, I mean, uh, you know, the coverage of Atlanta, I mean, in Atlanta, everybody was glued to it because we had this Irish swimmer winning medals and people were were really invested in it. You know, it was just like Kelly Harrington last summer, whatever. There was huge interest in her. Um, but but when you when like as a journalist, I remember interviewing her and saying to her, look, your times have suddenly, you know, they're, they're, you've made a radical improvement. Um, how has this been done? And her argument was that her her husband was helping coach her, and he had done things like said to her, "Look, why do why are you doing all of this uh, distance work early in your sessions, and then you do the speed work at the end?" In athletics, we don't do that; we do things completely differently. So, you know, she had said, you know, in training she was doing things differently, like doing her speed work early, you know, when she had when she had power. So there was a that was that was the way that was the discussion, I suppose, that was going on, and that was how it was being explained. So it's interesting right. maybe for people to know that. So so. She was being asked questions even before she went to Atlanta on, you know, how are you breaking all these records uh, and, and producing these great performances now? So that conversation was going on, definitely. And, and did, when did, Janet Evans, you know, uh, and those had to go, like it was, you know, it was a real, it was a classic, you know, live line thing where people were going, oh, you know, the Americans are giving out because she's beaten them, you know. Um, but I suppose within journalism, obviously, and and within swimming circles, people were were. were we're simply asking, how can you make uh, such great improvements so quickly? And that, those were the questions that are, were being asked. And when, and when Michelle Smith was being asked, Kleena, in advance of Atlanta about her improvements, how would you characterise her defence? Was she aggressive in defending herself? No, no, not at all. No, not at all. No, um, you know, took the questions before all of before Atlanta, before all this had happened, took the questions and answered them. And, and that was her way of explaining it. Basically, I changed how I train. And my partner, who is a track and field person, has 
has adjusted how I train as well. But it's interesting in this piece. It is interesting to me in this piece that um, that uh, there's there's talk that she also was sick. Um, and I hadn't seen some of this before. Paul has this where where there were times where she had um, she she excused herself or, or didn't swim in events, and he has the minutes from I, I, IAS, uh, which was Swim Ireland back then. Um, um, meetings and one of them in, in 1994 there's a very interesting caveat in one of them so it says a letter from Michelle Smith the director of swimming was read out in which she said she'd been ill not been happy uh, and, and uh, would not have been happy to take part but would be continuing her training um, and it is noticed that Michelle Smith has not supplied an address to us at which she can be contacted in Holland and all communications must be through her parents home in, Ath- in Rathcool it's just interesting even in the context of sport now uh, you know, with anti-doping the way it is now, where you know athletes have to give their whereabouts at every moment. Uh, you know, uh, to uh, anti-doping, it's really interesting just to see. You know, for people to understand how different the context probably was back then, mm. um, in terms of a lot of things. Kieran, what was your memory? Because I'm I'm going to detail in a second. I'll read it out in a moment. The conversation in RTE in advance of the games and how to cover the games, which is. Uh, fascinating in its own way and like look I've heard some of this as well and people will have heard some of this but again it doesn't make it uninteresting in any way whatsoever so I'll come to that in a second what's your memory of that period that Kleena is describing there 95 into 96 and the atmosphere as you head into the games which were of course you know supposed to be the Sonia O'Sullivan games mm. when the same was a largely a media story um no, the desire then was to cheerlead. Like you'll come to that when you when you cover the RTE stuff. Like it was all, particularly with Olympics, it was all about flag waving. Like a, a big deal was made of the fact that she, her photograph was taken with Bill Clinton. Like this was around the time of the peace process, and Bill Clinton was very keen to latch on to any Irish good news story. Um, at a press conference, Mich- Michelle Smith was a, a is a fluent Irish speaker. When Sean Bond Barnach was there for Radio Nagelta and he asked her questions in Irish at the press conference in Atlanta and she answered in Irish and a big deal was made of that like she would go on to present a TV program in RT called the Sporting Press Gang like she was predicted to have a glittery media career ahead of her and get loads of endorsements and stuff but obviously they dried up very soon but I was actually wondering about this where this goes because there's one tricky aspect of this there's one of the journalists who drove the coverage of Michelle Smith and you know exposed a lot of the questions around her was Tom Humphreys. You know, and do you bring up Tom Humphreys given what's happened to him since? Like it was Tom Humphreys, David Walsh, Paul Kimmage, Paul Howard, Eamon Dunphy to a degree in radio uh, and in print. But um, there weren't many others outside of that in Irish journalism. Like most of the others were, were on the other side defending her. So it became quite embattled and quite entrenched and quite bitter. And uh, I've often wondered on a human level because I remember Derville O'Rourke talking a few years ago and when she was studying UCD, Michelle Smith had actually gone back to UCD to study law on her way to becoming a barrister and Derville talked of, uh, you know, something seeing her and people shouting stuff at her, you know, calling her various names, you know, related to her ban, you know, calling her cheap, calling her dope or whatever. And also she has grown up kids now herself and Eric. And no, she she very much uh, is adamant that she's won those medals and she has those medals. She describes herself as an Olympic champion. But I wonder when her kids, you know, they know her Olympic story. You know, if they Google her and they see the stuff that's been written and said about her, you know, on a human level, it's uh, 
such a tricky story. Like it's, uh, she, as Paul said to me a few years ago, she's not the first person to cheat. You know, people cheat in all aspects of life all the time, but uh, some people have to carry the stigma with them. On the um, RTE discussion, so uh, meeting called a few months before the games, Gary O'Toole was uh, doing his finals, obviously in medicine at the time, reckons it was about March ahead of Atlanta 96 and there were seven gathered around the table the head of sport Tim O'Connor executive producer Niall Cogley uh, presenter Bill O'Hurley and the four lead analysts so O'Toole swimming Mick Dale in boxing Eamon Coughlin and John Tracy athletics uh, Atlanta being projected as the Sonia Games uh, so Tim O'Connor turned to Eamon first Eamon Coughlin this is obviously Gary O'Toole's recollection, I would think. What do you think is going to happen? Eamon was optimistic, effusive in his praise. Sonia, the greatest thing in track and field, guaranteed to bring home at least one medal. Tim turned to Niall and said, what are we doing with that? Niall Cogley had it all covered, remembers Gary O'Toole. There'd be an outside broadcast unit in Cove, all the reaction. Uh, they were going to limp, link up uh, with the family in Atlanta. Loads of colour pieces planned for the build-up. Tim was happy, that's great. Then he turned to me. How many swimmers have we, Gary? I said five. He said, how will we do? I said, I think we'll win at least two gold, maybe a silver and might even take four medals home. You could hear a pin drop. They were stunned. Run that by me again, Tim says. I said, well, four gold medals at best, definitely two gold. He said, who's going to win these? I said, our current European champion. She's the only one that's going to win any medals. He said, holy F. Then he said, Niall, what have we done about this? Niall said, well, not a lot. So Tim asks me again, are you sure? And that's when Bill interjected, look, he said, if he says it's going to happen, then we have to take it seriously. And then um, O'Toole recalls the period then during the games. He says, we spent the first two days, this is obviously after the uh, gold medal started coming in. We spent the first two days avoiding the elephant in the room. Uh, then it all kicked off with Janet Evans. They showed the Evans interview, but a directive had come down from above that we weren't to discuss anything about Michelle Smith and drugs on air. And that suited me, I have to say. I'd been through the George Gibney thing and took it very personally when his trial fell apart. Two years later, my life is back in order. I'm a doctor. I'm living with my future wife. I'm on television doing something I enjoy. There's an RTE decree that says you can't talk about this. Happy days for me. Was that honourable? Not entirely, but I didn't tell any lies. When people asked off camera or when journalists rang, I told them what I thought. I couldn't do that on TV. It wasn't allowed. Would I have answered the question if Bill had asked? Yes, I would. I wouldn't have been able to lie. So, um, were you both in Atlanta or do you remember watching the TV? I remember watching the TV coverage, yeah. Was it uncomfortable? Could you sense that there were things not being said, especially if, uh, like Janet Evans has spoken? You can't just play the Janet Evans interview, I presume, and then say, and now we'll go to the fencing highlights. <laughs> no, I remember there were discussions, all right. Um, but I don't remember that there was anything, um, you know, look, television is always, you know, very, I mean, the analysis level on television back then particularly probably wouldn't be what it is now, I think, Joe, that's fair to say, you know what I mean? Yeah. And also yeah. TV, you know, when you're covering the Olympics, everything is in terms of sound bites. It isn't always the place that you're going to have massive analysis. And definitely back then there wasn't that sort of analysis. And there was that mood of, oh, this woman is doing amazing things. And there was that move. I, I remember actually being one night, I couldn't see one of the finals. I was out or I was working. And I remember on my way home, popping into a pub in Temple Bar just to watch it, um, you know, just to see because the, the time difference just to see the, the, the performance 
Um, so like it was, she, she was regarded as an absolute, you know, generally the conversation. And it is interesting. Um, and and um, Kieran is right. Like one of the elephants in the room in this in relation to this is that Tom Humphreys was the one who led the the serious interviewing and the serious questioning of her as a journalist at the time. And um, and subsequent to there there and it's sure to come out in, in future pieces. There was a, you know, there were press conferences and there was lawyers involved and and it, it all got um, very interesting. Well, for television, Kieran, to be fair, when it's just happened and mm. you don't have proof, Kieran, I mean, mm. you, it, legally, you've got to be so careful and it is difficult in a live environment. I mean, there it's one thing whispers. It's one thing Janet Evans voice in suspicion. It's another to go on national television and say something which would get you in trouble very, very quickly. Yeah, but, but see, it wasn't just television as well, Tom. Um Joe, you know, back then, you know, uh, it was well documented at the time Tom Humphreys was going to leave the Irish Times over the Irish Times not wanting to run some of this stuff, uh, questioning her. You know, but, you know, and this was, you know, the spin that was out there in the media. Don't just, don't, don't, uh, you know, knock the national mood or whatever. You know, this right. person is a hero. And, you know, Irish, Ireland had never really engaged with doping stories before. You know, Paul had written a rough ride a few years earlier. You know, they'd been, you know, Sean Kelly had failed tests, but the, nothing was ever made of it. And, uh, you know, there was this feeling that, you know, that's that's what, you know, Russians do or, or Canadian sprinters do. Irish people are pure. Irish people don't cheat. They have a different kind of moral compass. So a lot of people actually genuinely find it hard to accept that an Irish uh, a, a competitor could actually have cheated at the highest level of a sport. They thought that was beyond the pale, that that was what, you know, filthy foreigners do. Hmm. And, and no, it's hard to believe, but that, that attitude was there. Well, it was, it was there for good reason, in that there was no proof of anything otherwise that this person was doing this um, legitimately. Do you know what I mean? Like, the results were the results at the time. Um, but, and- but as it's highlighted in the police cleaner, the results made no sense. In terms of her age, yes. her body shape, her previous track record, her coach's background as a discus uh, thrower who was suspended for four years, you know, it made no sense. But it was, no, it was, it, was it, only... yeah, it was still circumstantial, I suppose. Yes, what I'm saying is, I, that's a, just my point. Is like at the, when you're asking me what was the level of analysis at the time, the level of the analysis at the time on television was in the immediacy. This is what she's done. That's amazing. Other yeah. people would have been asking, "Well, why is she? Why is she doing that? And how is she doing that now?" And 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 I'm, we're just kind of saying what she was saying at the time and what was being said at the time. Yeah, th- I think there's another important point as well. It, ju- it goes back to when I talked to Paul for this story five years ago, hmm. and Paul said to me it was harder for him to cover than Lance Armstrong, and the reason was he knew cycling inside out. He said, "I knew nothing about swimming." So that's the case with a lot of us who cover Olympic sports. Like you're coming into something that generally, you, you know, you'd, you've had very little contact with in the previous four years since the last Olympics. And like swimming is a technical sport, and you know, a lot of us wouldn't know the detail of when swimmers peak and the kind of body shapes they could have and how progressions work. And that's when you have to listen to the people like. Um, you know, like like Sean Gordon, like Gary O'Toole, that know it inside out. Because a lot of people just take it as, you know, you're coming in and you're kind of wary of making a big judgment on something, you know, you don't really understand. So I think that helps. And that can often help in a way if you are cheating. Because a lot of the people who cover those big events like Olympics are general sports media mm. people. 
you know, they're not specialists. So they don't actually have an intimate knowledge of the sport, you know. So uh, I think that's that's part of it as well. But that's it's an issue that never goes away. I remember talking to Ronnie Delaney, and I did an interview with him for his 80th birthday. And they said to him, what you did in 1956 is all the more remarkable, given that Ireland have been just two Olympic champions since then, Michael Carruth and Katie Taylor. And he said, three. And I was going, three? And he said, yeah, Michelle. And to me, it wasn't unconscious that, uh, it wasn't deliberate that I'd excluded her. It was just unconscious because of her subsequent ban. You know, it kind of wiped those medals out of my memory. Mm. You know, she just still does have those medals. If you go to the Olympic uh, uh, headquarters and host, there's a, a, you know, a role of honor in the foyer and she's on that. You know, she's still there because she still has the medals. So, like, Eamon Cotlin was like Ronnie Delaney. Eamon Cotlin has, has defended her in the past that, you know, she has those medals. Jimmy McGee, you know, has passed away since he was always adamant that uh, she was clean and she'd won those medals fairly. So, there are still people who, you know, would look on her as Ireland's greatest sports person. If you look at when the, the initial... Uh, look at the comments on the, uh, under the initial uh, part of this uh, piece by Paul. There were so many people defending her and saying she is Ireland's greatest sports person. She has her medals. Hmm. You know, what's this all about? Yeah, well, look, she's adamant. She does as well. And uh, we saw that in her recent statement to Liveline. And she talked about all the hard work and she talked about it being the proudest moment of her life. And uh, she says people still stop and tell her where they uh, were. And she's touched by that level of support. And again, to stress and this underpins this entire conversation. She never failed a test. She has those medals. Those medals were never stripped of her. She was banned for tampering with a urine sample in September of 1998, banned for four years and lost the subsequent appeal. So uh, those medals very much intact. That's part two of, um, I'm presuming part three, but I don't know. I mean, I found it a brilliant read. If you wants to do parts four and five, I've no problem, to be honest. I mean, talking, about it, on the right talking about it on the radio is a different prospect sometimes, and, uh, but... Uh, yeah. Well, Sorry. I, final I word. Really, I was really. I. I would love. I, I'm sure. I, I'm not sure it would happen. But I would absolutely love. It would be to hear from Michelle Smith actually. Um. And and. Uh, and I'm dying to see what Paul can produce next. That's for sure. Okay. Well, that's in the Sunday Independent, uh, pages 11 to 14. So something uh, totally different. We'll try and get through all the other stories. Sorry, we've probably gone on a touch there uh, longer than planned. Loads of uh, pieces in the papers today, I think, that are worth uh, touching on. Uh, one that you wanted to mention here on, this is Tony Cascarino. It's on page oh, yeah. seven of the Sunday Times. And it's a full page. It's a big piece. And it's Tony Cascarino really outlining why he thinks uh, Chris Hewton if he's available, go and get him, I think, in short, is what he's saying. He's not disrespectful to Stephen Kenny. I don't think he's taken a huge amount of joy in saying it. But the headline is, Get Hewton. Ireland need to overachieve, just like Chris did at Newcastle and Brighton. So how would you characterise the Tony Cascarino argument here, Kieran? Uh Nonsense, to be honest. Like, I, I knew this was coming because well, once Chris Hewton got sacked, I know there are quite a few people... Like, I'm not saying Stephen Kenny should be given, uh, you know, should be allowed to stay as long as he wants and lose as many games as he wants and go without winning for as long as he wants. You know, every every manager, you know, the, the record has to be judged. But I, I think there are people who just don't realise where the national team are and what the options are and what needs to be done. And a few years ago, I think Chris Hewton would have been a perfect fit as Ireland team manager. Now the way the game has gone, I think he'd be disaster, because he's he's too defence minded, uh, he's he's too conservative, 
um, it's always a bad sign when stuff is leaking out of dressing room. And what was Cabinari the Forest dressing room? Like Forest is a dysfunctional club and has been for a long time. But, uh, you know, it was very negative about the way he operates. Like Stephen Reid came in yesterday. They won he changed the system, went with three at the back, went with a more positive system, and they won 2-0. And that's their first win this season. And, you know, it just makes no sense. Like, like Tony Cascarino was saying, you know, I said on the radio, this is what he writes, I, I said on the radio that Shane Duffy should be sent, you know, put up front. So effectively what he wants is Shane Duffy, a centre-half, as a big man up front, and the ball is hooked up to him. You know, is that what we want now for the Irish team? You know, like everything has changed. Like, and a lot of people don't recognise what has changed. Like, Brian Kerr has been quite critical of Chris, uh, sorry, of Stephen Penny as well. But mm. I remember Brian uh, in an interview a few years ago when Brian was manager, Robbie Keane wasn't having in great form. You know, sometimes Gary Doherty was actually playing up front, who was you know stro- centre half, stroke centre forward. So there was a bit of talk about Lee Trundle, who was at Swansea City and scoring a lot of goals. But he was never called up. And in an interview since, you know, it was a few years ago, today I found Brian Carey, you know, one of the things Brian said about him was, you know, he was playing in Division 3. You know, so, you know, that kind of went against him. But at the last international break, Ireland played four players from League 1, which is equivalent to Division 3. Because that's where Ireland are now. Mm. I think a lot of the criticism of Kenny doesn't uh, recognise... Uh, the paucity options. And basically, you're playing players who should be at under-21 level or be international level, but you have no alternatives. You have to play them now. And the way the game has gone, you know, you have to play with a... Like, there's no point hooping the ball up to Aaron Connolly or, uh, you know, a Troy Parrott. You know, Eamon Sweeney touches on this as well. And he mm-hmm. says, Chris Hewton, whose career has been distinguished by his commitment to attractive attacking football. I don't know where he got that from. You know, that is off the wall because... You know, one of the reasons, like, there was a lot of surprise when Brighton got rid of Chris Hughes because, you know, the, it, it was it's accepted he did a decent job, but they recognised they needed a different approach to move on. And they've got that under Graham Potter, who's a very expansive uh, attacking coach, very progressive coach, and he's one who's tipped to go a long way. So I, 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 there's just so many ex-pros, I think, who don't accept... Uh, Stephen Kenny, and I think it's because of his background. You know, they're so ingrained in the English game, they just can't accept this guy knows what he's doing, and they can't accept it as a different way. Like Chris Hutton will be similar to the Trapattoni and Martin O'Neill era. It would be very defensively solid, and you try and make the odd goal at the break. And those people that say it's all about results, they might get the odd result, but I don't think it would necessarily suit the players available, and I don't think it would be progress. He says, uh, Tony Cascarino, so a sense of his argument, he says, with Stephen Kenny, I just see an idea and the idea is so perfect that there's no debate and I don't like that idea. You can win in many different ways, but you have to look at who you have and how you go about it. If you know the opposition can't handle headers, then get the ball in the box. Uh, later on, he says, you can't outplay a lot of international teams unless you have incredible technique in midfield. And then he harks back to Jack. That is why Jack uh, decided to avoid midfield. He says, we don't have the technical players to do it, so we have to mix it up. He says, uh, Stephen Kenny, of all the Ireland managers, has had the easiest ride from the pundits, despite what James McLean had uh, said. And he says, I think Chris Hutton's capable of overachieving because he's done that at Norwich, Newcastle and Brighton. Lost his job this week, but not in Forest. They've had 18 managers in 10 years and the turmoil is there for all to see. It's not because I like Chris or have a bias against Stephen Kenny at all, but there are some tough decisions to make with Ireland. There may be better candidates out there, but I think Chris would do a very good job. Clean of thoughts on all this? 
Well, in some ways, like in some ways, uh, this piece, there's a lot of contradictions in it. But uh, like Tasquina's point basically is, is that you, his point really is you make the best of what you have, you know. Um, so he's in some ways he's agreeing with what Kieran is saying, yeah. And that whole line about the you know midfield, I think, is really interesting because England found that to their to their sorrow last summer as well, didn't they? Mm. Um, it's not rocket science. Um, but and he does stress. He says I haven't had one conversation with my ex-Ireland teammates about whether it was right or wrong that Stephen Kenny got the job. We were all hoping that he could bridge the gulf between the level of football that he was at and then Ireland under twenty-one. It's an interesting line. Um, that he could somehow find a way with the senior team. My problem is nothing to do with where Stephen Kenny has come from, but I just see a flawed idea. I think that's worth, because that's slightly different to how Kieran is interpreting what he said. But one piece in it did make me laugh, though, and um, and I think it's worth reading out. And that's, um, he, he had a row, with, he, he's talking about um, having a row with, with, uh, with Liam Brady when he was at Celtic. And that, I don't know whether you noticed that, but that mm. cracked me up. Liam wanted me to do certain things, and I actually said... <laughs> You're actually uh, you're asking me something that I'm not very good at. If I said you should get at the far post and nod one down, would you do that? He didn't like that and pointed out that I was a professional footballer. But I was trying to make a point that Liam was brilliant in other ways. But I just can you imagine Liam Brady's face when he said that to him? Yeah, not impressed. He was, he was asking Cascarina <laughs> to drop into midfield and do things, and yeah. Cas is like, "Look, I can do plenty. I'm not doing that." So his his well, whole point is 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 that you know he thinks that. Uh, Kenny is trying to be too creative with the players that he has. That's basically what he's saying, and yeah. it's not a it's not a lost point. But I think Kieran is interesting and right about the, there's no reason to think that Houston would be the solution to this problem. And actually, Stephen Carr does a piece in the Times two pages on with Paul Rowan, and he's asked about whether he thinks that um, he and he says it's not going to be very open football under Chris. You know, so that's proof. That's kind of echoing Kieran's point that, it, you know, there, there's no reason to think that that it would be any way different, and that he would take a very pragmatic approach to it if he ever got it. Anyway, but look, I, I, what I thought was interesting as well was Eamon Sweeney's piece. It kind of links into it in some ways, which is, you know, um, a lot of people under pressure in management situations, and and I'm I'm delighted that he's in cloud, included Vera Powell in it as well with the Irish women's team. You know, because. You know that's what management is tough, and if you're not producing results, that's where you get judged, and you get you get judged on the field, and that's how everybody should be uh, judged in in all of these things. And and he talks about how having has you know that that they've lost the seven in a row. Mary 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 Hannigan had a brilliant piece in the Irish Times during the week about this as well. That women should be equally judged on female managers and female teams have to be judged as well on their results, and um, it just talks about he includes her in it which I think is good to include a female manager in it as well because these are all Ireland women play Australia next week the Ireland women's rugby team play Spain today you know these are results that are important and their managers are under the same kind of pressure or should be under the same kind of pressure if they're not producing results yeah Italy yeah, today Italy. sorry to correct you I know you meant Italy today. yeah Spain obviously was Monday yeah, and, Joe, and Joe, Joe, just a quick on, yeah sorry Joe um, one thing with the Cascarino thing he mentions Jack Charlton and, and, and these articles always mention Jack Charlton. People are highlighting, uh, you know, people who want Ireland to move on from Stephen Kenny hark back to Jack Charlton all the time. Jack Charlton left Ireland uh, as manager in February '96. Most of the Ireland squad now weren't born. You know, how is it's of any relevance to where Ireland are now? I cannot see. And even that's, you know, the anecdote with Liam Brady, you know, I want you to drop in midfield, do this, and, you know, 
Tony, Tony making the point that you don't want to be asking players to, to do something that's alien to them. What Stephen Kenny is asking his players now to do isn't alien to them. This is the way they play at their clubs. This is the way they played through the ranks. It would be alien to them to be told to hoof it up to Shane Duffy. Mm. I don't think he gets that. Yeah, well, that's page seven of the Sunday Times. Uh, just on the rugby front, a couple of different pieces. So I mentioned that uh, new potential director from World Rugby, full contact training to be... Uh, you know, brought back to potentially just 15 minutes a session and however many uh, sessions a week then to be monitored accordingly, which is uh, interesting and not surprisingly. Uh, a couple of pieces on the plight of the women's game. Tommy Conlon in the Sunday Independent on page uh, 21 is just outlining the fall from grace really over the last number of years. Uh, Rory Keane in the Mail on Sunday, I know you spotted this, uh, Kieran, saying, well, look, Paul O'Connell's hanging around why yeah, is he I not that involved? Was an interesting it's a fair angle. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Because uh, you know, we pointed out how, how um, you know how the pack was such a big issue. You know, when they lost to Spain, and and you do look at the resources, and you think, you know, even for a week or two weeks, you know, could Paul O'Connell not give a hand there? Would that not make a big significant difference? And it's something I would never have thought of. But it's, you know, I think you have to think outside the box with these things. You know, especially when. You know, there's quite a lot of cutbacks in IRFU in terms of um, staff due to COVID. Yeah. So, you know, I think they have to be smarter in the way they use the staff that are there. And uh, I think that would, uh, I think Paul O'Connell, knowing the character he is, I think he would he would, he would jump at the yeah. chance. I don't jo- think he would say no by jo- any means. Joe Schmidt did take sessions. So, I'm, look, I'm sure mm. they'd all be open to it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. Tommy Conlon's yeah. just talking about life after the bandwagon has left town, Clean and yeah. look, there's the energy at Park uh, situation, which is not good, and uh, apologies warranted, and inquiries absolutely if they're needed. But the bigger picture for me, the more important picture, is what's happening at national level. And Tommy Conlon mentions the 2013 Grand Slam, the World Cup of 2014, where they beat New Zealand and got to the last four, followed by a 2015 Six Nations win. And now we have um, the disastrous home World Cup in 17 and the loss to Spain on Monday night. So World Cup qualification, it's I mean, it's far from beyond their grasp, but it hangs in the balance a touch. They certainly look unlikely to qualify automatically over the next couple of weeks. They may well make this repechage where they can qualify again later on in the year. But the fact is, Plina, the Irish national team is going backwards and has been for a number of years now. And... It's just happening on the IRFU's watch and it's happening at a time when women's sport has more attention and more focus on it than ever before. It should be the opposite, really. Yeah, but it, it, but it, it is essentially a question of timing as well, Joe. And it, it is interesting in relation to even the discussion we've been having on the on the men's football team, which is that, that the, the team of 2013 and 2015, they were incredible overachievers. Mm. And what they did at the time was incredible. But... What, what happened then was that England and France put a lot of money into the women's game, gave players the opportunity to develop, and has that has set them apart from everybody else. And the current Irish rugby team, women's team, they have they've got a mixture of very young, really talented players who are coming through the coming through now, but they're missing those anchor senior players, I think, um, and they don't have the level of talent and that, and skill that was there in 2013 and 2015. So you ha- they are in this difficult transitional period. However, that doesn't excuse things like the 15 penalties against Spain this week and the, the terrible lineouts. and I think um, one score, whatever. And, and even the, what amazes me is the inability to find a kicker. You know, we even if we are transitioning players, 
from Gaelic football, then surely we can we can find good kickers. And we haven't had a consistent kicker since Neve Briggs retired. Um, so all of those things are questions that should be answered. Uh, the the, the gate, as Brendan Fanning <laughs> calls it, um, in uh, in his piece, uh, I think Tommy Collin and, and Brendan Fanning have two good pieces in Sunday Endo on this side by side. But like um, the 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 lens the situation at the Interpros last weekend is a totally separate thing and in fact if you read Tommy's it appears clear actually that the mistake was made it's a Leinster mistake was made and somebody from Leinster operations didn't arrive in time and tell them no don't put the tent there they weren't there in time to tell the tell people setting up don't put that tent there we've found another place for it you know basic stuff that should have been done that's down on some individual or individuals that's a separate thing entirely to the standard and the coaching and the support of the women's national team yeah. um yeah. and and i think um there are questions to be asked i i, I suppose i was a little bit into i'm interested i think rory Keane's is is a really constructive piece um uh, and and a good thing to point out and say look the line out was terrible why haven't they got somebody like paul o'connell coming in the relationship between the men's and the women's clearly to me there, it, it has never been there um and i was really actually delighted to see a couple of current men's players this week uh, when asked about the women that 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 ratgate situation actually stepping up and speaking out on behalf of the women because i have never seen that before and i was struck in 2017 at the world cup in ucd at the absence of um I would have thought that I would have seen more Irish senior men's players at those matches. And I, I was surprised at the time. And I thought, oh, there, there isn't really a, a close connection between them. But I hope that's changing. And I think it should be changing. And I think Rory's idea is, is interesting, a, a, an interesting idea. Um, and what he's saying is if they need extra technical coaching in specialist areas, and if there are people in the IRFU being employed by the IRFU who could help out for such an important occasion as a World Cup qualifying tournament, and they're not particularly busy at the moment, why weren't they called upon? And that raises interesting questions. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, I hadn't realised the official number, by the way. Tommy Conlon points it out. The number of adult female players uh, playing rugby in this country is paltry. He says 2018 officially estimated at 1,341, which is uh, yeah, the pool they're operating they, on. They're trying to get yeah, to 5,000. Yeah, in 2018, in response to criticism that they weren't doing enough for the women's game, which they clearly weren't, in 2018, the RFU put together a, a study of the women's game, where it was going to go and what it wanted to do. We discussed it on Off the Bench. There were loads of highfalutin ideas in it. But what was radically missing, I thought, was any detail on the financing of it and how it was going to be financed. Um, and those figures date from that, Joe. So at the time, yes, they were only, that was that's the official figures of senior registered women's players at the time was only 1,341, which puts into context what an unbelievable achievement it was by that team, by that team of 2013 and 2015 to do what they did and how exceptional they were. But it's it's making the transition since and meeting expectations since. And that's what Kieran is talking about as well with the Irish men's soccer team is we have these expectations, but how realistic are they really? And what's been done to affect change at the bottom of the grassroots level? Folks, we're going to run out of time. We had uh, so many pieces picked out. Tyrone Mayo fallout. Uh, we had a bunch of pieces in Manchester United. There's some very interesting Ryder Cup uh, pieces. Yeah. So to try and cherry pick a few, and we're leaving quite a few out. There's a lot in the papers this week. I think, um, Kieran, you mentioned Phil Jones, I know, in your initial text. Phil Jones yeah. is interesting because he blew up recently. I mean, look, he's been a figure of fun for a long time, frankly. He's in his late yeah. 20s now. But Rio Ferdinand went to town on him on Rio Ferdinand's own podcast, which I think... Um, might tell you something about the motivation there. 
but he went to yeah. town on Phil Jones recently and said, "What's he doing there? You know, twenty nine years of age. He's just he's just keeping a place from an academy player." In effect, he's a waste of space. He's taking an easy wage. Yeah. Uh, and it struck me, we never ever hear from Phil Jones. And uh, so perturbed was he by the Rio Ferdinand comments that he has reached out, it would seem, to Jonathan Northcroft and given a two-page interview in the Sunday Times defending himself, given the true story of what's been going on over the last number of months and the last number of years. Uh, what Rio said was poor. It was really poor. I'm not into disputes. I'm not into arguments. And if he didn't know, he didn't know. So, in effect, what Jones details here is just a horror show of injuries. Going back to when he was uh, 20, ultimately he had the meniscus removed when he was 20. It wasn't repairable. So that left Jones with bone against bone in the joint of his knee. Uh, Linear movement, okay, but always sideway impact caused uh, pain. He'd lay a ball off, you know, something as, as simple as laying a ball off. He said the resistance against the knee was agony, the merest nudge. For years I'd go into games thinking I shouldn't be playing. Uh, got to kind of May 2020 territory. He thought he got himself back into great shape, had a training session and, you know, blew up again. And he said, enough's enough. I've had too many anti-inflammatories, too many injections, too many close shaves. And uh, he walked off the pitch. The headline is, I lost my mind. I thought I was finished. Uh, ultimately, he seems to have had the last resort of operations. And thus far, it's going OK. And he's had two 90-minute appearances for United's under-23s. Uh, very recently August 2nd he completed his first full session teammates applauded him onto the field not something they would do by the way if they thought he was stealing a wage I suspect he said I feel young not 29 but 25, 26 I've missed so much football I feel I've so much left in me and uh, I think it was great Kieran, to get the other side and you can imagine as he details the abuse he's taken and details everything he's been through how he must have felt when he saw Rio Ferdinand effectively describe him as a waste of space you know, stealing the yeah. living kind of vibes. Yeah. And, uh, like, people can forget how highly Phil Jones was rated when he was at Blackburn. Like, when United came in for him, Liverpool were in for him strong as well. And it was seen as a great coup by United to get him on board. And, you know, he started, uh, Jonathan Northcroft starts off the piece and he describes uh, Phil Jones out walking in Hale in, in Lancashire with his three-year-old daughter and pushing uh, her little sister in the pram. And a workman pa- walking past just says, Phil, you're shit, you're shit. You know, there's a three-year-old looking at him. And, he, you know, he talks about he eventually went off social media because he got so much abuse. Um, to be honest, the more I hear of Rio Ferdinand, I think he's a problem for Manchester United. You know, all these uh, Solskjaer, you know, would, would have been seen as quite close to him. And he came out against him over stuff he's been saying about Ryan Ronaldo. But Ferdinand was actually one of the people who approached Ronaldo to persuade him to come back to United, you know, when, when it looked like he was going to City. And, you know, I think he, he, he's stirring things up a bit uh, more than I think people at Liberty United would like. And this guy has gone through the mill. And, like, he had become a figure of fun by people who didn't know the story. Mm. And the story is pretty grim. You know, he's, he's, he's lucky to be in, the, in one way to be in the position he's in, that he's a chance of coming back. Because he, he's gone through so much pro, uh, of a horror show with that knee that, you know, he should really be finished. But, like... He, I hope he can come back, you know, because uh, on a human level, I really feel for him. And uh, nobody should have to put up with what, he, with what he's had to put up with. Yeah. Hard not to feel sorry for him. There's a, there's a little, um, just a, a subsection where uh, it's a welcome lift from Fergie. And so it's Phil Jones recalling how a meeting this year, and so imagine, you know, a very low ebb at the moment, uh, meeting this year with Alex Ferguson lifted his spirits. 
He says he was just unbelievable for me. I went to the premiere of uh, his documentary film with a few of the players. He came over, we shook hands, and then out of the blue he said, hey, you were effing terrific against Real Madrid away in 2013. Effing Mark and Ronaldo. He says it gave me so much confidence. I don't even remember watching the premiere. I was just sitting there thinking about his comment, thinking he remembers it. Someone of his magnitude remembers it. I just found myself thinking, clean it. Could I just not get Fergie in to manage the team? Is there one more year in Fergie? <laughs> well, the interesting thing is as well, though, like for all that you hear about how brilliant Ferguson was one-on-one, and it always strikes me that Mick O'Dwyer, I always think that Mick O'Dwyer link is similar, you know, how we could build players up. But there's a good piece as well, is in the Mail on Sunday today, with the RS in Sunday Times with Peter Schmeichel, D- David Walsh and Peter yeah. Schmeichel on his book. And all, he talks about how Fergie at one point didn't take his calls back. So like Fergie could could do both he could be really um he could be really ruthless when he needed to be if there were negotiations or whatever going on as well but he definitely had that effect on players where he could just make them feel a million dollars just by acknowledging them you know and just his own status in the game was huge the um Ryder yeah. cup coverage is pretty good obviously it starts on friday yeah. i think everybody here is very invested in how it goes for Patrick harrington and shane larry and rory mcelroy for obvious reasons harrington yeah. in particular I mean, <laughs> the great thing about the Ryder Cup in many ways is that you have uh, individuals with huge egos suddenly having to come together in a team and all the friction that goes with it. And uh, it just can be incredibly entertaining. The Mail on Sunday, I mean, it details like we, 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 we talk about Europe as being always a happy camp and the US never happy and struggling to manage it. But what's quite interesting, you have Paul McGinley in a couple of different places talking about, you know, yeah. it's not always rosy in the European camp. Kieran, but they manage it is the thing and and two examples in particular he he there's comments about just how bad the relationship was with McElroy and McDowell in 2014 around the time of the uh, legal action that Rory was taking uh, against the McDowell uh, McDowell's management company and like even Phil Mickles in the press conference was asked about it and he said well look you know Europeans, at least we're not litigating each other. It was how kind of Phil uh, put it. And of course, the Sergio Harrington uh, situation, which again, yeah. you know, I mean, Sergio, according to a piece in the Mail on Sunday in an interview, Sergio said to McGinley, do not pick, don't you dare pick Padraig Harrington as one of your vice captains. Yeah. Uh, has that uh, relationship ever been explained? Like, how, why did they, what was it the, at the root of the enmity between the two of them? Sergio and Harrington. It, yeah. it really upped several notches when Harrington, in Sergio's eyes, stole uh, two majors from him. And uh, if you ever, if you, I mean, if you care yeah, to. Yeah, but was it not there before that? I there was a touch. I think, I think that the yeah. chemistry wasn't good, but that really soured yeah. things. And like, if you watch the 07 Sergio Garcia press conference, it's uh, yeah. the uh, whatever the opposite of magnanimous is in defeat, it's that. It's yeah. just, you know, blind luck. And, you know, 08 obviously didn't help either. And then, you know, things went downhill for a long time. Yeah, because um, because this is one of the interesting things about this is like David Walsh goes into that this in his column is uh, the relationship between Kepka and Deschambault or the lack of a relationship between them, and the U.S. are the hottest of favourites. But you know he goes into you know the difference between the team like uh, you know Kepka has a very respectable record, but he he's not really fond of the team stuff. No, and you have to buy into the meetings and do you know doing the bits and pieces around it and. Uh, like uh, Pori Carrington's done a lot of interviews around it. I didn't hear your Golf Weekly one, but uh, you might have touched on this as well. But he mentions the word legacy in interviews today, yeah. and he did yesterday an interview with you and Murray with the Guardian about how losing it could affect his legacy. Yeah, and I was really surprised at that. You know, how could so the guy? Well, I, I I asked him. No, I got it because like if I think Nick Faldo now, 
I think 08 Ryder Cup as much as I think the six. Yeah, matches. because you and Murray made that point, and I, I wouldn't, to be honest. I would right. think, oh, no, he's one of the greatest. Co-. No, I would, I would just see that as an asterisk, no, but I, not a, a major thing. I, you know, I, I, it, it, a touch, like what Harrington said to us, well, I said, are you nervous? And he said, no, I am. Because he said, winning another major wouldn't actually change my legacy that much. Winning a tournament, nothing. Winning a major yeah. wouldn't transform my legacy. Winning Ryder Cup captain? He said, yeah, that's, a, that's another um, part of the epitaph. Yeah, yeah, but I was surprised that he thought that he'd be judged on it. In, 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 you know, that it was so important that he thought it would affect his reputation, long-term reputation, negative. And I was exactly like you, and I was like, really? Do you really think that? I was well, really once, surprised. Once, once you're not an infamously terrible captain. I mean, I guess you can be a, lo- you can be a losing <laughs> captain and, you know, it was tough and we were unlucky and you did a good job. But once it's not like, you know, mumbles and grumbles to the press afterwards about everything you got wrong. Yeah, well, I, I actually, I mean, there's loads of great stuff in the papers today, but I actually think that Paul McGinley's column in the Sunday Times is maybe perhaps the most insightful. I found it fascinating Yeah. Um, because he, he, he talks about kind of the three or two, three key things he talks about. And one of them is that don't overplay the team element to individualistic uh, or introverted players because not everybody thrives in a group environment. I think that's fascinating. Like to, to that's that that that's been something he's been, he'd be thinking about, and and um, that that a manager has to think about that because this is the ultimate test. As you say, have so many big egos, and how do you get them to to marry and make great pairings? And then the other thing I thought was really interesting in his piece as well. Uh, these are insights that I, I haven't really seen before. Was he saying about his preference to? partner how you judge a partnership how you and also how to get the right rookie with the right experienced player and how important that is and for the americans that's going to be huge like stricker is a you know clean pair of hands you would think strickers you know he talks as well about the diplomacy element of it and you would think that stricker isn't going to mess up badly on the d- diplomatics front he's one of those you know american players that has a, has a very, you know always had a very kind of you know straight played with straight bat nice reputation but the pairings is is key. The the chemistry is key, um, and I just I think this is a really good column. Anybody anybody who's interested in writing it, probably well worth reading. Agree totally. Yeah, really good. Like he was saying, do not send a rookie out with a superstar. Like don't put Rory with a rookie. He said yeah. a perfect player to put them with is someone like Lee Westwood. Doesn't have a dominant personality, yeah. but is very relaxed. So Bernd Wiesberger, the least experienced of the rookies, put him with Westwood, which I thought was great, and uh, also. Um, please and thank you and be super nice in the media because you know this yeah. will be the most partisan crowd yeah. ever in the Ryder Cup given COVID it will be just literally I mean if the Salim Cup's anything to go by it will be 95% <laughs> Americans so he said you know how, what do you do do you take that on do you, you know, put your hand behind your ear and go you know big and try and make a colder atmosphere even hotter he said no be as nice as pie in the media, respectful, on the charm, offensive, celebrate your puts, but don't over celebrate them. So I even thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, you wonder yeah, is yeah, um, really interesting. Harrington think, thinking that way as well. So, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was good. You, you, you just see, w- w- there's obviously a lot of pressure on Harry Harrington. There's a lot of pressure on Rory McIlroy because, you know, he's, he's key, as Paul McGinley said. But you consider the pressure on Shane Lowry. There's not a huge amount about Shane Lowry in the papers, but Basically, the UK media want Justin Rose there. So I think that does bring pressure. Uh, and and uh, there will be a lot of UK media at, at the Ryder Cup. And I think, you know, Shane Lowry knows that, that there's a lot of guys watching this and watching at home that think he shouldn't be there, there should be Justin Rose. And that brings a bit of pressure too, you know. It's, so there's all sorts of things being thrown into the mix and it should be fascinating as it normally is. 
Uh, Dermot Galise is very good, Joe. Just finally too on the, on just I thought he was really interesting on the course, on the Irishness of the course, on on the history of the course with Ireland, and also because it's a ball strikers course, and that's the phrase he uses, and it's the phrase that Harrington's used, and that's uh, I think, and there's a there's a double page spread there on on the two teams and uh, biogs on them and how they've done a previous uh, Ryder Cups is the kind of thing people would love to read as well. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, we're not going to get to all the stuff, so I'm going to have to draw to a close. Is there any one piece you want to mention or direct people towards each of you? I know, like I said, there was loads of Tyrone Mayo, there was a Heather Payne yeah. piece and various others. Any any one piece each of you want to mention as a sign-off, Kieran? Shoot. Yeah, well, the one piece, uh, because most of the All-Ireland football final coverage are uh, follow-ups, they didn't jump out at me, and maybe that's partly because Tyrone were actually very open this week. And there's been a lot of stuff across all the media with them. So a lot of the angles were covered. But I did find Mark O'Shea's column interesting and that he he questions the kind of narrative that's often there that, no, that Ireland champions are always the best team. And he makes the point, a lot of teams watching that, you know, will think they're at least as good as Tyrone, if not better. And I think think it's kind of refreshing to think that because I remember Paul Flynn uh, giving an interview in January 2015 that was the year after Donegal had beaten Dublin. And he said we were the best team in 2014. Mm. You know, he was adamant on it. So, uh, you know, I think it's kind of. I, I did a piece yesterday very quickly with Mickey Whelan to mark 10 years as Dublin's breakthrough All Ireland. And he was talking about Mayo, and he said they lost so many All Ireland finals by a point. He said if you lose a final by a point, it doesn't mean the other team is better than you. It's just a kick of the ball. You know, it's just chance. And often that is like, for all this, Mayo were poor with 67 minutes on the clock they were a kick of the ball away from Tyrone who played really well but the, you know we're, we're, we're led so much by the final scoreline and all the analysis goes and there's so much stuff now that Tyrone can be a dominant team etc but really you know these things you know if the penalty goes in you know it's, so many things change little things can make such a massive difference. oh yeah totally agree I, I'd be shocked if Mayo played them again would they ever be as bad again as they were that day, you know, uh, there, cl- there's a good angle yeah. of that as well, Joe. Just briefly, I thought I think Marcus hits a good point there as well. He, his point in the piece is that Dublin, Dublin could come back strong again. Rather than people, why are people writing them off? But one point he does make is like in in relation to COVID, people have trained less. There's less pressure on players. We've still seen, you know, the, they can produce it. So would something like that persuade somebody like uh, Jack McCaffrey or Paul Mannion back into the Dublin setup? Have things changed? And that's a really interesting angle to take, I oh, think, as well. Oh, totally agree. Like if Paul Mannion or McCaffrey turn around to you and say, look, I can't commit to this January penance. Marco Shea calls it penance, which is so like yeah. it's this GA thing. We have to suffer or we won't deserve to win. Maybe it's a Catholic yeah. thing. I don't know. Um, if they turn around and say, look, I'm busy at work, I'm busy with life, I'll keep myself ticking over, I'll really get going sometime late league, and trust me, I'll be fit come May, I'll be fit as you like. I mean, jump at us. You know, this this notion of collectivism when it's amateurs playing, I think maybe is uh, a touch overdone. So I agree with that point totally. Um, folks, thanks so much. That was such an interesting chat on a few different levels. So it was great to have you, Kieran Cunningham and Kleena Foley on the Sunday Paper Review. Thanks again, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks, thanks for it. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.